0: Before we look further at this passage together, uh, let me pray for us and ask for God's help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, uh, you are the God who knows all things. Uh, you are the God who is the King, who reigns over everything. You hold the future in your hands. As we reflect on this passage this morning, uh, may we be encouraged to trust you more, uh, such that we can enjoy the peace of living life under your watchful care, knowing that you hold our future in your hands. Amen. Our society expends a great deal of energy trying to predict the future. Uh, I'm not just talking about the astrology industry, although there is that. Uh, Of course, there's the insurance industry, and the meteorologists. Uh, Governments set up these think tanks to try and anticipate what's coming around the corner. A large part of the investment industry is based around trying to predict and to stay ahead of the market, which of course is not an easy call at the moment. I think there's also, uh, this is true for us as individuals. Uh, We say to ourselves, if only I can get these qualifications or this financial cushion. If only I can get maybe a spouse or build a good set of friends around me who will stick with me through thick and thin, then we reason I'll be guarded against whatever the future may throw at us. The future, it's unknown. Uh, Who would have even thought eight weeks ago that today we would be facing a global pandemic with the possibility of an accompanying global recession. Even eight weeks ago, that was not on the radar. As a society and as individuals, uh, we expend a large amount of effort and money in trying to secure ourselves against the uncertainties of the future. But is this enough? Can we do it? Is there not always that nagging feeling of vulnerability that haunts us? Are we gonna be caught out? And, of course, this fear can lead to some pretty strange behaviours amongst otherwise quite rational people. What have we seen of late? Mass stockpiling of toilet rolls, of all things. Who would have thought? Uh, It's surprising how many modern people are superstitious. And yet maybe this is not as surprising as it first seems. Uh, It was G.K. Chesterton who put it this way. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. You see, people are desperate to try and retain some control amidst all the uncertainties of life. And they pursue this in all sorts of different ways. They have different strategies for coping. And many people muddle through life in this way, but occasionally a crisis hits which brings a reality check. And they then realize that what they are leaning on is not quite as solid as they thought. And the foundations of their life are shaken. Of course, we've seen that in Australia in recent months with the bushfire tragedies. Many people's livelihoods and their homes and all of their their possessions gone up in smoke. And of course, we are seeing it now with the COVID-19 crisis. When we go back to the 6th century BC, we then see that this is also the case for King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He is hitting a crisis point, and he is terrified. So let's go back together to this chapter and see what it tells us. And the first thing we see is the insecurity of life without God, uh, when the world's certainties are exposed as empty. So Nebuchadnezzar is this uh, very intelligent, uh, very powerful, gifted man. Uh, I'm sure he would have been in the top 20 of the world's most powerful men in all of history. But a crisis hits in the form of a very vivid dream. And it throws Nebuchadnezzar into a flat spin. You see, the Babylonians believed that dreams were very significant. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar knows instinctively that it is some sort of divine message, but what makes it so frightening to him is that he hasn't got a clue what on earth it means. Look at verse 3, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and it wants to know what it means. Now the Babylonians of that day had a whole industry of experts to interpret dreams and in verse 4, the astrologers say to the king, O oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. But King Nebuchadnezzar, by this point, is smelling a rat. Uh, he's not so sure that these guys are giving him good advice. And so he decides he's going to put them to the test. He's going to find out whether, in fact, they are really the real deal. Do they really have connection with the gods? To give him these insights. Verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Now what we have here is an ingenious scheme for exposing fraud. Uh, Let's call it the Nebuchadnezzar debunking method. So, say, the next time that a horoscope expert says to you, tell me your date of birth, and i will tell you your future, this is what you do. You say, hang on, why don't you tell me my date of birth and my future? And then if you really want to up the stakes, just throw in, and if you get it wrong, I'm going to cut you into pieces and demolish your property. (laughs) Well, you're going to find out pretty quickly whether or not they do have supernatural powers or whether it's just a con. Now this incident you see was per- the perfect opportunity for the wisdom of Babylon to prove itself once and for all publicly and undeniably but what we see is that it spectacularly fails. In verse 11 they can see this, what the king asks is too difficult No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live amongst men. You see, actually, this time, uh, they are spot on. Uh, The wisdom of this world is ultimately a dead end when it comes to knowing and controlling the future. Now, when people discover that the things they've been trusting in to control the future are actually empty and insecure... Uh, as Nebuchadnezzar does, it is deeply unsettling for them. Uh, When the global financial crisis started in mid-2008, there followed tragically a string of suicides among wealthy and well-connected individuals. Maybe you've heard about uh, Long Gully Bridge in Northbridge, where sadly, uh, financial executives were committing suicide jumping from the bridge. It got to the point where the RTA had to put through a planning order to erect fences along the side of this heritage-listed bridge. Uh, It was opposed at the time, but it was finally passed in 2011. These were people who discovered suddenly that the foundations of their world were not as secure as they thought. And it ultimately destroyed them. And I do hope not, but it may yet be the case that history in that sense repeats itself itself In this current crisis. And I think it then goes some way to explain and help us understand Nebuchadnezzar's pretty extreme behavior here and we've already heard about his threat of dismemberment in verse 5 but in verse 12 we read this, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. You see, one of the ways that our insecurity about the world can surface is in the form of anger. Uh, It was the supermodel Naomi Campbell uh, who has spoken openly about her anger management issues. Uh, Famously in 2006, Naomi Campbell lost her temper with a housekeeper and threw her mobile phone at her. And Naomi was then prosecuted on assault charges. Uh, Campbell is quoted as saying this, and I do quote, Anger is a manifestation of a deeper issue. That, for me, is based on insecurity. You see, her insight is actually very helpful. Because if we believe that the world is basically a chaotic, unpredictable place, then, of course, it's up to us to try and control everything. And if anything gets in the way of that, of course, we are going to react with frustration and with anger. And in fact, this feeling that life is basically chaotic and insecure can erupt in all sorts of destructive behaviours. Feeling insecure about finances can lead to envy and hoarding and even stealing. If we're feeling insecure at succeeding in some task, it can lead us to being irritable and grumpy. If we're feeling insecure about relationships, it can lead to us being domineering or manipulative. If we're feeling insecure about how someone may respond, it may cause us to be cowardly or to cover up the truth. You see, it's worth us thinking through Uh, which of our behaviours are actually born out of a sense of insecurity that we have about our world. You see, in Nebuchadnezzar, we are meant to see this connection between this awareness that life is frighteningly insecure and the resulting helplessness we feel and anger. So, uh, we are being invited here to peek behind the glitz and the glamour of palace life. And what we're seeing is that the false certainties that this world offers are exposed for what they are. They're false. You see, life without God in a chaotic universe is very bleak and brittle. And that brings us to the second half of our passage because in the second half we see the contrast. We see the deep security of knowing the one who knows the future. You see, in the verses that follow, we discover that God doesn't just know the mystery of what it is Nebuchadnezzar is in his dream. Even more significantly, God puts the dream in Nebuchadnezzar's head in the first place. Uh, God knows the future that the dream predicts. But there is more. Uh, God doesn't just know the future as if he can fast forward the DVD to see how it ends, the reason he holds, knows the future is that he actually directs the future. Now, after the Lord has revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, uh, he says this. This is Daniel. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. A wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream world of the king. You see, the reason God can predict the future is that he determines every detail of the future. And later in this chapter, actually, uh, you're gonna have to come back next week if you want to find out, but we're gonna hear how God predicts the future in a very detailed and startling way for Nebuchadnezzar. So the reason he does this is that God controls the future. I uh, don't know if you've ever been to Yale University in America but there is there a sunken garden in the front of the Benicky Library. I've got an image of it there. As you can see uh, in one corner there is a pyramid and the pyramid symbolizes time. In another corner there's that huge donut-shaped structure on its side which symbolizes energy And in the third third corner, there is a huge dice perched on its tip as if it's ready to topple in any direction. And that symbolizes chance. And this represents the worldview of many modern people. Uh, The universe is self-existing. There is no creator, no God. Uh, The universe is a place where what happens is decided by interplay of these three factors. Energy time and chance and of course no one can tell which way the dice is going to fall and so we're all stuck in this unpredictable and chaotic world but when we come back to this chapter fortunately and thankfully it tells us another story for in this chapter it shows us that this way of looking at the world is ultimately wrong Uh, In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says as much in the Ephesians letter in chapter 1. From the roll of the dice to the movement of the stars and the decision of rulers, everything happens, and I quote Ephesians 1 verse 11, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God Bends everything to conform with the purpose of his will. Isn't that amazing? Uh, You might ask, well, what about evil and suffering? Uh, does, does, Does God determine them as well? Well, at the cross of Christ, we see how that happens. In the cross of Christ, we see that although God is not responsible for the evil, he is sovereign in control of even the worst evil as it does its worst. And through it he brings about the most amazing outcome at the salvation of the world. Uh, Knowing this makes a huge difference. Now there are three ways in which this difference is worked out in Daniel's life compared with Nebuchadnezzar's. Confidence, praise and humility and we to look at these finally together. So, firstly, confidence. Uh, the first 12 and a half verses of this chapter are a picture of fear, insecurity, and chaos. Then, at the end of verse 13, Daniel steps onto the scene. And with that, the whole feel of the chapter changes. Uh, Firstly, he hears some words that you think would be enough to chill anyone to the bone. He's told it's all over. You and your friends and your colleagues are about to be brutally executed. But does Daniel panic? Uh, No, he doesn't. Does he slip into despair? No, he doesn't. Uh, In verse 14, we see Daniel responding calmly with prudence and discretion. And then in verse 16, even before Daniel understands the dream... He books his appointment with the king. He doesn't get the interpretation until later, but nevertheless, he books his appointment with the king. Uh, Daniel understands that God can do what worldly wisdom cannot do. God can easily reveal the dream and its interpretation to him if God wants to. And so in verse 17, uh, Daniel drops around on his friends and says, uh, guys, I think we should have a pray. They say, great idea Daniel, Uh, anything in particular on your mind? He says, well yes, there is this one thing. I've given this undertaking to the king and if the king doesn't tell me uh, what was in his dream, uh, the king is not telling me what's in his dream, but I've got to tell him. And if 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 I can't tell him, we're all dead. That tends to focus the mind and it leads to a fairly earnest prayer meeting. And in fact, Daniel tells his friends in verse 18 to seek God's mercy. Verse 18 again, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed. You see the point. It's entirely up to God. It's down to God's mercy as to whether he's going to answer. Uh, Daniel doesn't know the future. Uh, He's in the dark as to what will happen and yet unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel has this calm confidence. He knows that whatever happens, God is in charge. Ultimately, Daniel can trust God regardless of whether or not he answers the way that Daniel hopes he will. You see, Daniel displays for us here what a difference it makes to know this God who holds the future in his hands. You see, it's not fatalism. Uh, this is not uh, whatever the will of Allah is, so be it. This is a personal reliance on a heavenly Father, the one who knows everything and works everything in accordance with his good will. I remember an advert in the 1980s back in the UK uh, put out by the AA, that is the Automobile Association. Uh, the Australian equivalents would be the NRMA. And in this advert, it consisted of a sequence of distraught motorists who were all facing uh, various serious mechanical problems. And the passengers in their cars keep saying things like, uh, can you fix it, dad? And dad comes out from under the bonnet saying, and here's the catchphrase, no, but I know a man who can. In these days, to be politically correct, you would probably say, I know a person who can. Uh, You or I do not know what the future holds. But we know somebody who does. Uh, we cannot know all the answers and we can't, certainly can't sort out all that life throws at us in a broken world. But if we put our trust in Christ, we know the one who can. And that is enough. It gives us a calm confidence, whatever tomorrow may bring. So we thought about confidence. Secondly, praise. Because this is the next characteristic that flows out of knowing the one who holds the future in his hands. Uh, The narrator in Daniel is quite sparing about what we the readers need to know. But despite being so economical in his writing style, the writer actually allocates four whole verses on praising God. Here the verses are again, verse twenty. Uh, praise be to the name of God for ever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and depo- deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. These four verses are actually the center point of the whole chapter. At this stage, we don't even know what has been revealed to Daniel yet. But instead of rushing to the conclusion of the story, we are being told... To slow down and to praise God, even when we don't yet know the answer. There's a true story about the 18th century Baptist preacher Spurgeon when he was explaining the good news of Jesus to a woman. And for her, she was just starting to understand what he was saying. Uh, there was this dawn of understanding, the penny was dropping about how wonderful the good news about Jesus was. And she suddenly bursts out, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord saves me, he shall never hear the end of it. She was already starting off down that path of praise. The gospel was touching her heart and was causing her to praise. And even the way that this chapter is written is designed to grab us and to say, How do you think you should respond to this God? Why not even now start turning these truths back into praise? Because, of course, as Christians, uh, we can learn a lot from the Bible, but the knowledge must not stop there. Knowledge must ultimately lead to praise. And that is the challenge of this chapter. And that indeed is the role of God's people. Uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this, "Uh, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So, confidence, praise. The third implication of knowing the God who holds the future in his hands is humility. Uh, Archaeologists have uh, recovered uh, these enormous glazed brick panels depicted, uh, depicting winged lions from the ancient city of Babylon. I've got a picture on the screen. Uh, here's one of them. Uh, if you go to the uh, British Museum in London, uh, you can actually see it firsthand. Apparently, um, they reckon there were 120 of these panels along either side of the street called the processional way. A processional way re- led from the northern gate of the city of Babylon All the way up to Nebuchadnezzar's grand and majestic palace. And so it gives us a little bit of a picture on that setting in which Daniel walked that day. You can imagine as he walks along processional way towards the palace, there he is, little Daniel amongst these majestic trappings and he is then hurried right through into the throne room of the great ruler. At verse 26 we see this, The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Well, here is Daniel's moment. I mean, if ever there is a moment for the classic party trick, this is it. He's got the answer in his pocket. This could be his moment of glory. And yet, how does he respond? He responds with incredible humility. Verse 27. Dan replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king this mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel could have used this opportunity to big note himself, but instead he is humble and he points instead to the glory of the God who has revealed the dream to him. Uh, Daniel knows that the knowledge he's been given is a pure gift and so he doesn't lord it over the king's advisors and he doesn't use it for his own selfish ends. He's careful to ensure that all the glory goes to God and it's an encouragement for you and I if we're following Christ to remember that we have not discovered the truth about Christ through any superior wisdom of ourself it's not that we're brighter than other people the fact we're understanding the truth about Christ and we put our faith in him is a pure gift of God it's an act of his mercy and therefore it keeps us humble before him And it keeps us humble before other people, wanting to share this good news with them, but never thinking that we are better than anyone else. So in this chapter, we've seen that insecurity of life without God. Uh, We try every strategy we can to protect ourselves against the uncertain future. Uh, We put our trust in all kinds of things to try and control our destiny. But ultimately, they are just sand in our hands. And when the crisis hits, we're brought back to earth with a bump. And yet the wonderful news of this chapter is that there is a God who holds the future in his hands. And he directs every moment of of life for his glory and the glory of his son and for the good of those who trust him. You and I do not know what tomorrow brings, but if we trust in Christ we can walk into it with confidence. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this historical narrative of the dramatic events back in sixth century BC. Uh, Thank you that it speaks in a very real and living way into our modern world today. Uh, The issues have not changed, and particularly at this time of global crisis, It speaks very powerfully and pertinently into our world and our lives and our hearts. Please help us to take away from it uh, the blessing of what it offers us, that assurance of the wonder of the security that comes from putting our trust in the one who holds the future in his hands. Amen.